Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Epiphany Exchange, our monthly podcast series where the one and only Dr. Danielle Dickey shares his innovations in literacy, leadership, and instructional best practices. I'm your host, Richard Bork, Chief Marketing Officer of Educational Epiphany, and it's always an incredible honor and pleasure for me to introduce Dr. Dickey, a nationally recognized authority on curriculum, instruction, organizational development, and administration of schools. Dr. Dickey brings 20 plus years of leadership experience in public education and has authored scores of professional books and a myriad of instructional resources as part of his work as founder and chief executive officer of Educational Epiphany, a leading provider of standards-based instructional resources and groundbreaking professional development. Dr. Dickey doesn't know this, but um, today I, the team and I want to give him a shout out. Um, it's really rare that you have a CEO that supports their team with unwavering trust and belief in our strategies and the work that we try to do here at Educational Epiphany day in and day out. So Dr. Dickey, as we push forward with this critical work in public ed, the team here at Educational Epiphany and I just wanted to give you a, a quick shout out and say thank you for all your support and all the amazing work you do out there every day as CEO of this organization. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Daniel Dickey. How are you today, Dr. Dickey? I'm doing rich. I'm doing, I'm doing, well, I'm doing well, Richard. Thank you uh, to you and to the team for the awesome shout out. I really appreciate um, the vote of confidence that you guys have in me. And thank you for being awesome team members. That's, that, that even applies to you too, Jerry. Jerry, you guys can't, if you're watching today, you can't see Jerry, but Jerry's sitting over to my right. Thank you too, Jerry. Uh, Jerry's <laughs> our director of operations and he and Richard work very well together uh, to support my work around the country. I could not be more appreciative. Thanks, Doc. Yep. Right back at you, sir. Absolutely. Um, so I can't believe, first of all, this is our third episode of the year so far and our seventh episode in total, which is super exciting. We've had such a great response. So we want to say thank you to all of our listeners and viewers out there. Um, we've gotten a great, great response from all of you, especially since we've gone on to uh, this new video platform, which has been really fun for Dr. Dickey and I um, and the team to to get all to all this content together for you. So um, thanks to all of our listeners out there. And we're excited to jump into our seventh episode of the Epiphany Exchange since since it began. Uh, Richard, um, would you do uh, listeners and viewers a favor and talk sure. to them a little bit about how they can access the audio versus the video version of our podcast? Yes, absolutely. So if you go to Spotify, you can find both the older versions of the podcast, which are audio only, and the new video podcast as well. So you'll see all seven episodes on Spotify. Um, on Apple Podcasts, you will also see the same. However, you'll need to find the video podcast as a separate one. So you'll see the Epiphany Exchange as an audio podcast and the Epiphany Exchange video podcast but they're all up on Apple Podcasts as well. And if you just want to take a listen on your drive into work or on at the airport or wherever you are, you can always go to the epiphanyexchange.buzzsprout.com. Buzzsprout is our audio um, podcast server. And is there another way? Is there a YouTube version as well, Richard, that folks can watch? Yes. We've also been... <laughs> thanks, Dr. Dickey. Um, we've also been putting all the video recordings of the podcast on our YouTube channel. Um, and and uh, you can find that under Dr. Daniel Dickey on uh, YouTube. Okay, it's, so it's everybody, there, 
four ways that you can either listen to uh, and or watch our, our, our podcast, our monthly podcast. We invite you to do so, and we hope that you benefit from it greatly. Dr. Dickey, there's been a lot in recent news lately about um, one of the main issues in public education, which obviously is students aren't reading at grade level proficiency and they're not performing well on state tests and assessments, right? So this is nothing new. However, a lot of talk in recent days has been about the science of reading in particular. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, your history as starting as a third grade teacher in inner city Baltimore and ultimately ending up where you are today with 20 plus years of, of experience in public education and in a myriad of positions all the way through top leadership and administration. Can you talk a little bit about your history of work in public ed and how it relates to the science of reading? Sure. Um, I don't know if a lot of folks know this, uh, Richard, but when I, became became a third grade teacher, as you said, in Baltimore, I was uncertificated. So I took an alternative pathway to teacher certification. And, and this is not a stab at folks who take that alternative pathway because my knowledge base as a third grade teacher was shallow because of my alternative, you know, pathway to the classroom. But I had teacher colleagues who had similar knowledge bases around what it took to get kids to read. And they went through formal training. Right. And so I'm okay. not putting two groups against each other. That is not my intention. Yeah. But I was allowed to plan and deliver. And I was trusted to plan and deliver instruction for other people's children without a knowledge base in the science of reading. And, and I taught next to folks who have been through formal training for public education service who were similar in their knowledge base. Right. So, and that comes up a lot. Yeah. Sorry, so Dr. I, yeah, no, 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 it's fine. So what point am I trying to make? <laughs> it is unfair to children and families to have adults responsible for giving children unfettered access. We're supposed to give children unfettered access to instruction of the highest quality, but if we've not had a formalized training and if school administrators and district level administrators do not provide access to that formalized training, we're all complicit in underservice to children. Mm -hmm. I had no business standing up in front of those third graders without an understanding of the two major buckets of the science of reading. Mm -hmm. But I was permitted to. And the people who were supervising me didn't have the knowledge base to coach me in that area. And so I had to figure it out for myself. Like so many teachers in our country have to figure it out for themselves. And every year they inherit children who read multiple grade levels below the grade level expectation. And they're left to figure out for themselves what it takes to get children to the reading proficiency finish line. That's unfair. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's been part of a lot of these news reports in recent days about the science of reading and teacher training. And you know, whether it's higher education or on the ground training, there's a there seems to be, you know, a serious lack of understanding or um, 
you know, preparation for educators as they move into a school building on, on how to implement these practices? Yeah, two things we can do. One, we cannot blame children for their reading ability or inability for that matter. And secondly, we cannot blame the adults who are responsible for educating them if they've not been given access to high quality training to support their ability to plan and deliver instruction consistent with both the science and the art of teaching children to read. So I'm not going to blame either group, but I do think mm -hmm. there is something we can do about it because the science of reading is based upon a finite body of knowledge. So I heard you talk earlier, you mentioned this, Dr. Dickey, about the two buckets within the science of reading. Um, can you talk a little bit more for our listeners about those two buckets and how our work at Educational Epiphany, you know, tie directly into those? Sure. Okay. Bucket number one uh, for the science of reading is, is called foundational skills, reading foundational skills. And there are six little buckets in that one bucket. Okay. Number one is concepts of print. And that simply means that children need ample opportunities, um, as early as they can sit up straight <laughs> to orient a book top to bottom and understand that information uh, is delivered to them in a book from left to right. So top down, left, right. So on a two-page spread, you always start on the left-hand side and go to the right-hand side, right? And um, that may seem simple, but there are a whole lot of kids who don't get the whole books until they're sitting in a kindergarten classroom. And then as public educators, we have to fill the gaps that kids have with not only the knowledge of what they might find in the book, uh, but also how they might show respect for a book <laughs> when it's in their hands in a, in a classroom. Access, right? Like at home or with the caregiver or, you know, from birth. Yeah. And unfortunately, there are uh, there's a large percentage of children in our nation. And this is not necessarily you know, demarcated by race, I think is demarcated by socioeconomic status. Race plays a role, but the greater role is socioeconomic status. So a child, children uh, from, you know, disadvantaged, uh, economically disadvantaged households are less likely to have access to a book in their hands than, than their more affluent peers. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the second um, little bucket inside of this first bucket called foundational skills is phonemic awareness. And that's about, it's not about kids like reading something. It's about their ability to hear and identify and manipulate individual sounds when they hear them. And so if I had known this as a third grade teacher, now my students, they did well, they could have done better. So if I had known about phonemic awareness, I would have done something about it. I would have been more intentional about it in my third grade teaching experience. So was it about, again, it's about kids hearing, identifying and manipulating individual sounds or individual phonemes, phonemes to be used interchangeably with the word sound in, in words. Like, so a kid can hear three sounds in cat, like cat, cat, right? And they that may sound simple, but before kids can write it, they have to be able to hear it in their heads and be able to segment the individual sounds that make up a word. It's interesting when you said when you were a third grade teacher, if you had known this, you would have done something about it. A, a, a yeah. few of the, the interviews that have happened recently with longtime educators and teachers, 
some of them have even gone as far to say, you know, oh my gosh, after 28 years, I might have not been doing this right. Yeah, because it's not enough, Richard, because people always try to put me into these this conversation about the two schools of thought uh, around literacy. Like, do we just put books in kids' hands and then um, they will develop a love for literacy and they, they, they'll read for leisure in a very um, pleasant way, consistent with one hearing classical music in their heads? That's not realistic. So it is torture for an individual to try to make sense of what's written in text when they don't understand the rules for what the what sounds to produce when the letters hit the page. I know I'm getting ahead of myself in these uh, six little tiny buckets and foundational skills, but reading is not enjoyable when you know you're not being successful. So both of those schools of thought are really important and they have a place in public ed. So number three out of the six under foundational skills is phonological awareness, which means that kids go from phonemic awareness, which is again, hearing, identifying and manipulate individual, manipulate individual sounds to phonological awareness opportunities where they have ample opportunities to hear, identify, manipulate units of oral language. Like they hear two syllables in the word sister or they hear three mm-hmm. syllables in the word artichoke. Or when they look at the word unhappy, they see a, a prefix and a base word. So pro- children <laughs> need access to instruction that is characterized by adults who understand this. Okay. The fourth bucket um, in this first huge bucket, the larger bucket of foundational skills is phonics, which is basically children having ample opportunities to learn the predictable predictable relationships between letters on the page and the sounds that one needs to produce based upon the letters on the page. And, you know, when I was a third grade teacher, and, and I've said this on in other settings, my students did better than any other third grade group and like our recent history when I was a third grade teacher in Baltimore. And so I'm not, I'm not saying I did a terrible job. I could have done a better job had I understood phonics myself as the educator. Mm-hmm. So what is phonics? Children understand the relationship between the 44 sounds that make up <clears throat> the English language and the 144 ways to write them. That's a finite body of knowledge. And no one gave it to me in my alternative certification process. And many of my peers who went through the normal route to become a teacher, they were oblivious as well. Hmm. Yeah. And it's still in the news today about how that still takes place. Yeah, sure. So I'm not blaming teachers. What I'm saying is administrators don't write lofty goals for uh, significant improvements in student outcomes and you don't have a plan for foundational skills. Hope is not a strategy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the final two for uh, this bucket, huge bucket um, for foundational skills is uh, spelling. So phonics is, you know, some folks use the word decoding interchangeably with the word phonics. So phonics being, I see letters, I know what sounds to make. Well, spelling is the opposite of phonics. It's the opposite of decoding. Some folks call it encoding, which means because you know 
the relationships between letters and sounds, when you're asked to spell something because you can decode, you can encode. <laughs> right? So you know that not every time you need to represent the f sound in a word because you know from phonics, from decoding, that f can be single F, double F, PH, GH, when it's your turn to spell something or encode something that you have spelled, you make a decision based upon your body of knowledge about those four graphemes for that one phony. Lord have mercy, help kids. <laughs> yes, please, yeah. <laughs> right? And so, unfortunately, children hear for far too long in their elementary experience, foot, F. <laughs> Somebody needs to say, PH, elephant. G-H, tough, right? And then the final one here is fluency. So we, we do all those things with kids, phonological awareness, phonemic awareness, uh, phonics, um, spelling, encoding. We do all of that so that kids are fluent when they read. That's all for the purpose of fluency and ultimately comprehension. And so what is fluency? Children will not be fluent if they don't know the relationships between sounds that they hear and letters they need to write and letters they see in writing and sounds they need to make to represent them. And so there's like there's no shortcut to get children right. to read in fluency. Each of these six little buckets in this large first large bucket they're all inextricably intertwined and children will not read at the grade level expectation as expeditiously as they could, Richard, if they don't know sight words. And what are sight words? Sight words are, there are 315 of them for grades pre-K three. Uh, Jerry, let me have the whole box, would you please? I don't know if you're rationing. There are 315 sight words that kids need to know if they're going to be able to a read in a fluent manner. And 220 of those 315 are what are called service words, like pronouns and adjectives and adverbs and conjunctions. And 95 of those 315 words that kids have to know on site uh, are called high frequency nouns, like boy, tree, house, like even Santa Claus is one of them, right? Mm -hmm. And so why are these words so important? Because they make up 80% of the words that kids are going to see when they're learning how to how to read, when they're learning how to uh, engage with concepts of print, when they're learning phonemic awareness, when they're learning phonological awareness, uh, when they're learning the rules of phonics, when they're learning how to spell, sight words are all interacting in that learning experience. And so when I was a little kid, Richard, and I know I'm being long-winded, but, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm coming to a close in my response to your question. When I was a little kid, our teacher had us sit in pretzel legs on the floor, and she had a set of these words that were connected to a our grade level reading ability. And so she put in front of us and she used this protocol with us. And the protocol was say it, spell it, say it, use it. Better. B-E-T-T-E-R. Better. Um, now let me use it. Better leave me alone. Right. It's that simple. 
But so many of our so many of our kids, they're not getting this experience anymore. And then we expect them to be able to spell at the grade level expectation. And when they get to the secondary grades, we tell them, oh, you know, don't worry about spelling, but try to fill out a job application and you can't spell. Right. It's it's almost like that old Lexile scale that you see where, you know, there's Home Depot install instructions or how to put a bicycle together or. You know, then you go all the way up to job applications and the Lexile levels of those things that you encounter as you get older in life, it doesn't get easier. It only gets harder. Yeah. But why can't we, in one of the richest nations in this world, get these six little buckets right in this one larger bucket? Right. And that's one of the major points of this problem, right? It's, it's how not only, you know, so I'm thinking putting myself in a, a principal shoes, right? I have all these challenges on a daily basis. It's my responsibility to have these hundreds or thousands of children inside of this building be safe, right? Get to go to lunch, have a, a playground where they can go and engage and have fun with each other, have learning environments that are safe and impactful. And then how do you sustain and implement this type of formula in addition to all the other challenges you have on a day-to-day basis and, and make it sustainable and make it effective. Well, as I said, initially, it's been made more complicated than it has to be. And why is it made complicated? Because I tell, I'll tell you what teachers tell me all over the country. One, I didn't know I didn't know these things, mm. which, which does what? It sets the imperative for professional learning. I was with a group of secondary teachers in the Northeast yesterday. And I asked them, what is their greatest academic challenge in their service to children? Now, these were all high school principals. And you know what they said to me? Our children can't read. Which means what? You can kick the can down the road if you want to. You're going to have to eventually pick up the can. So what were they telling me? In so many words, they were telling me their children don't do not possess adequate levels of phonological and phonemic awareness. That their children, secondary, do not mm-hmm. possess adequate knowledge of phonics, do not possess adequate knowledge of encoding. So they write horribly is what they told me. That when they're asked to read out loud, they read in a choppy fashion, which means they do not read fluently. So what am I trying to say? The same challenge that we have in the elementary grades, it will meet us in the secondary if we don't address it. Right. It's not going away. Right. So if you are a school leader, a district level leader, a teacher leader, a teacher, a parent, doesn't matter. If you're concerned about the the literacy development, the literacy development of even a single individual child, the, the body of knowledge to get that child there for whom you have concern is finite. And there is no substitute for it. And there is no magic that will get children to reading proficiency. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to give you that straight line. Two buckets of work. The first bucket of work has six items in it. And I'm being repetitive on purpose because I want people to get it. Number one, concepts of print. Do kids as early as possible have access to books and do they understand top, bottom, left, right? 
Number two, phonemic awareness. Do kids, can, can they hear sounds inside, individual sounds inside of words? Number three, can they hear and manipul- manipulate units of sound? So you start with individual sounds, then you go to units of sound. Then you layer in phonics, which are the predictable rules. Then you layer in what? Spelling, which if you understand the predictable rules, you know there's more than one way to represent a given sound. So that when it's your opportunity to demonstrate reading fluency, you don't read in a choppy fashion as a developing learner. All right. Now, the second bucket of knowledge is called knowledge-based competencies. And in knowledge-based competencies, there are four tiny little buckets of work. Number one is vocabulary, which means what? It's okay to sound out words, but if you don't know what they mean, you're in big trouble. And, and as an educator, I've stood over kids, had them read, and then asked them questions about what they read, and they couldn't answer them because they were not creating meaning at the same rate that they were decoding the words that they encountered in, in the given text. It's like so say them, what does it mean? Spell them, but don't actually know how to use them. Yeah. And look, there are, you know, kids will tell you when they don't f- fully understand something, they'll read it without expression. <laughs> but they're not right. actually reading if they're reading without expression. They're actually only decoding. So let's not even call it reading. <laughs> All right. So because mm-hmm. decoding plus creating meaning is reading. So then what is creative meaning? It means that the words that kids encounter that they're able that they're able to pronounce, they're also able to create meaning of what those words or they also they're also able to at, at, at the same rate understand what those words mean. Which means what? <laughs> Children have to understand word parts. Children have to understand the most commonly occurring word parts. And when they understand the most commonly occurring word parts, they're positioned to decode and create meaning at the same rate and therefore get to reading proficiency. There's no shortcut. Okay. The second bucket in this huge second bucket, okay, the four little buckets in this second big bucket, the second little bucket in this second big bucket bucket is background knowledge, which means what? Children accumulate, readers accumulate uh, knowledge from the world, they accumulate facts that they encountered from a myriad of reading opportunities. But if children are not given a myriad of reading opportunities, they can't collect words and put them in their chest. So they appear to be uninterested in reading when in fact, most of the words that they are encountering are new to them. Imagine every, you know, how awkward, awkward. I remember how awkward I was learning how to use a particular fork at a dinner table because I came from poverty. Right. Mm-hmm. So imagine kids feeling like that all the time, like fumbling at the dinner table with a uh, with a fork and not knowing which glass is the glass for water versus the glass for an, another beverage versus which one of those knives is the knife for the butter <laughs> versus mm-hmm. slicing the green beans and so if they if they're feeling that way for most of their time what looks like kids being disengaged or disruptive is just actually them trying to prevent others from knowing they don't understand Oof. 
So the second little bucket in the big second bucket is give children access to a variety of informational and literary texts. And we, if we are guilty of only reading novels, we're complicit in promoting the achievement gap. In an ELA classroom, children need access to historical and scientific texts, texts that are technical, texts that cross eras, texts that cross topics, and texts that cross perspectives. And in that same ELA classroom, children need access to texts that are written by a variety of authors on a variety of genres, plays, poems, and stories, on a variety of eras of literature, on a variety of traditions of literature, classical, traditional, and mythological, and on a variety of themes of literature. Which means what? The adults have to know this so that they can support it because everybody wants to hold teachers and leaders accountable. But in the absence of knowledge, the knowledge that's necessary to push kids forward, you can hold folks accountable, but that'll feel like harassment to the folks who are subject to that accountability. Accountability is supposed to be support. All right. Okay. Third big bucket. I know I'm answering your question in a roundabout way, but I, I want I want to be clear here. Oh, this is great. This is perfect. Mm-hmm. The the third and the fourth and final uh, little bucket in this second big bucket uh, called knowledge based competencies is oral language skills, which means that children need ample opportunities to uh, engage in discourse. But unfortunately, in far too many classrooms in our country, children are told, be quiet and you speak when you're spoken to. And they have few opportunities or limited opportunities to turn and talk. You even see kids. I see it all the time in impoverished communities. Kids walking down the hallway like this. And they call it catch a bubble. So y'all go watch the video so y'all can see me catch this bubble. It is. Let me describe it. It is kids walking with their index finger over their closed mouths and a bubble in their cheeks. Which means what? (laughs) Some of those same kids at home are told, shut up. Don't you ask Um, me another question. Be quiet. And then they go to school where they're supposed to have opportunities to develop oral language and they're told to shut up. So. So let me say let me say it this way. Reading is intellectual input, but speaking and writing are intellectual output. And in the absence of the intellectual input, which is predicated upon one's ability to uh, possess and use uh, phonological awareness, phonemic awareness, and the list goes on. In the absence of the aforementioned foundational skills and the aforementioned knowledge-based competencies that I spoke of, one cannot position themselves to take in the intellectual input. But then we want kids to engage in intellectual output, which are speaking and writing, and they didn't have the input opportunity? (laughs) Stop playing with other people's children. It's such a systemic problem. Yeah, it is. But, you know, and then we do silly things like put kids in front of computer programs and think that the computer programs are going to teach them how to read. I was going to say also, Doc, that, you know, phones, like smartphones and the Internet and social media, like it's a great way for a frustrated child to kind of deflect into that world if they're not given opportunities to speak or 
you know, yeah. say what's on their but mind. Look, or not, but Richard, I, see, I'm not, I'm not the guy who thinks, you know, I'm not saying you, I'm not saying you're doing this, but I hear it all the time. I'm not that guy that wants to blame technology because I live in the era I live in. You live in the era you live in. The children we're responsible for teaching, they live in the era they live in. So it's incumbent upon the educators to use mm, the culture of that era to accelerate learning because technology is supposed to be an accelerant of learning. <laughs> and so right. instead of thinking as technology as the enemy, te- technology is not the enemy. It's an accelerant of learning, which means what? Position children first and then employ the technology that draws them in to accelerate their capacity. <laughs> okay, then finally, reading comprehension the final fourth bucket in the second big bucket. So we do all these other things that I mentioned before to get kids to the point where they can unlock meaning. They can consume informational text. They can consume literary text. They can decode and encode. They know the rules. They can consume that text in a fluent manner. They can talk about it with someone else. They can write about it with someone else ultimately so they can be what? Assessed. So reading comprehension is not... I read what was on the paper. It is, I can use what I read on the paper to do something more cognitively demanding. Like summarize a text. But you want kids to summarize and they don't know which letters make which sounds? You want mm-hmm. kids to summarize the text and they can't speak to you about the key details in the text? And someone said to me the other day, and I know this ed- top brass educator meant no harm. She said, FYI, Dr. Dickey, our standards are changing next year. And I had to translate my response because the individual was trying to say, well, we're getting ready to get a new set of ELA standards. So I wanted to say there's nothing new under the sun, but her subordinates were in the conversation. So what I have to do, I had to say, I had to translate what I needed to say. And I said, and when you get your new standards, I'll bet you inf- drawing inferences are still in them. I will bet you that main idea is still in them. I will bet you that for secondary students, central idea is still in them. I will bet you that text structures and text features are still in them. Why? Because there's no new literacy concepts under the sun. Now, the, le- the, fu- the, the little letters and numbers, combination of letters and numbers we put in front of them might change. But the concepts are universal. So, so, which is why I put together a set of resources uh, called Dr. Dickey's Decodables to make sure that children have access to these 10 little buckets, instruction characterized by these 10 little buckets inside of these two big buckets before it's too late. And we end up having to try to mitigate the achievement gap. My goal is to never create one. Powerful. I love it. Oh, thank you. I'm sorry. It took me 17 minutes to respond to your question. No, that's, it was, I mean, this is exactly what we were here to do today. And thank you for sharing this because it's so important, as you just said, like to start, we have to start students in the, those early grades. Mm-hmm. And we talk about access all the time. If, if, if teachers and kids in that environment do not have access, then what can we do? Yeah, look, I, I honestly think that in public ed, we've been like sort of like bamboozled in that we think that if we just give people 
piles of stuff, right? Here, take this new, whatever you call it. And now automatically, children are going to have standardized access to high quality instruction. It's not true. If we don't take our time to make sure that all of the adults in the instructional ecosystem have calibrated understanding of those 10 big buckets and the 10 little buckets that live inside of those two big buckets, you're just going to have a pile of stuff. Because every tier of the organization has to support the most important tier, which is the classroom teacher and the classroom. Because the boardroom has never made something better for kids in real time in classrooms. I know we like to think so as leaders, but the, the unit of change is the classroom. And so you can give a highly qualified or even a brand new teacher a pile of resources, and they can still be led by people who won't let them use it in an effective manner, who may mm-hmm. not give them access to quiet planning time designed to build a teacher's capacity to both plan and deliver instruction consistent with those two big buckets. Or teachers will come into a PLC and someone will talk to them in the, the entire time and never let them ingest new learning. Or we'll tell people, turn to page 19 and teach page 19, then teach page 20, then teach page 21, and ignore that kids might need something else from you that's not in the resource. And hurry up and finish, get to the end of the curriculum, guys. Yeah, and be on the same page at the same time. That's insulting to the teacher who knows that there might, just because I introduce something to kids, doesn't mean they all got it at the same time. Some of them might need triage. So I cannot be at the same place at the same time as the teacher next door to me. That's artifice. Mm-hmm. And it contributes to the achievement gap. So here's what I did. We created... um you do mind handing them to me one group at a time. Uh, we created uh, 120 children's books. And I'm going to start with pre-K just to show them to you. Pre-K, 30 titles, 30 informational, 30 literary. Why? So that children can get background knowledge. Are you with me? <laughs> yeah. Right. So, th- So school districts who have access to this resource Every child in that pre-K classroom has a copy of their own book so they can touch the page and turn the pages because some of our children have not touched a book before they get to pre-K. Right. Okay. So in addition to those 30 pre-K, 30 kinder, half informational, half literary on a variety of topics, variety of perspectives, variety of cultures. Right. Thirty. First grade books. Mm -hmm. And thirty second grade books. And what are they built on? They're built on what? Teaching phonological awareness, print concepts, phonemic awareness, phonics. Right. Mm -hmm. They're built on teaching kids encoding, sight words, so that they may read fluently and ultimately comprehend what they have read. But it's not just enough to give kids the books that are Mm interest-based. The adults in the instructional ecosystem, they need a guide. 
They need a guide so that they can read the book for literary experience. And we appreciate that. But not only do they need to read the book for literary experience, they need to be taught literacy skills while they're reading the book for literary experience. And so if, you know, folks who have access to this resource, and there's a growing number of folks who do, and we, we drop this resource this school year, made it available to schools this school year, you will see that each of the major components of those two buckets, so those 10 little buckets and, and the two little buckets we talked about, you'll see a subheading in each one of the four-page lessons for each one of the books. So each one of the books has a four-page lesson. And that four-page lesson walks the teacher through, gives the teacher access to activities so that he or she may walk children through the foundational skill-building process. So that the achievement gaps that we're trying to close in third grade, they are, they are never created. <laughs> so if you were a second grade teacher, would you have wanted access to this when you started teaching? <laughs> I, I created these because I didn't have access to anything like that when I was a third grade teacher. They came out of my frustration from standing in front of those children. Okay, look, here's what I knew. I, I knew it then. I knew that prison cells were built based upon third grade reading ability when I was a third grade teacher in 1996. How many years ago is that? 26 years ago. A lot. So I knew 26 years ago that early literacy outcomes are directly connected to adult outcomes. And so I wasn't standing in that classroom, like trying to teach from my hip. I was standing in that classroom thinking, what do I need to do to make sure that I don't contribute to, uh, you know, what we see in society for so many children who come from poverty. And you've had kids in that classroom still stay in touch with you, right? I have. Yeah, I have. And, you know, without self-aggrandizement, you know, they thank me for, they they constantly thank me for my contribution to their development. But if if you can't read and you can't write and you can't speak about what you have read, doors close in your face. And people who close doors in your face, they don't send you a nice letter to tell you why the door closed in your face. The door is just closed in your face. And then you are relegated to um, other means for making a living. Mm -hmm. And so literacy outcomes are community outcomes. Literacy outcomes are national outcomes. Literacy outcomes are international outcomes. I wish someone had given me a resource like this. And so I created it because I never had it. And so I, it's not enough for me to just hand this to teachers. I got to hand this to teachers and walk them through it. I got to hand it to teacher leaders and walk them through it. I got to hand it to instructional coaches and walk them through it. I got to hand it to assistant principals and walk them through it. I got to hand it to principals and walk them through it. I got to hand it to district level coaches and walk them through it. I got to hand it to district level principal supervisors and walk them through it. I got to hand it to chiefs and walk them through it. I got to hand it to superintendents and walk them through it. I got to hand it to state departments of education and walk them through it. I got to hand it to colleges and universities and walk them through it. Because everybody's talking like they don't know. Everybody's talking like they know. But when you ask them questions about these elements, they don't know. Mm -mm. And our kids pay for it. They sure do. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry y'all got Pentecostal. So no, that was powerful, Doc. And as you were talking about 
who needs to be walked through it and how literacy is directly tied to community outcomes. You triggered the parent in me and thinking about like the school year is about to end. Another school year is about to end. Another grade level has gone by and the summer is about to come. And as a parent or a caregiver or or a community member, you know, we talked about systemic systems and supports and multi-tiered inside of a school district and inside of a classroom, inside of a school building. But, you know, as a parent, you can't help but not wonder what can I do and how can I learn some of these skills to support my child or other people's children, either inside of the community or at home when school's out and when the summer's about to hit. Yeah, sure. Well, let me say one thing before I respond to that. And when I say I've got to hand it to all these tears, I'm saying that because the, the train the trainer doesn't work. So let's say as a as a leading provider, professional development, I go into a given school district if given an opportunity when given an opportunity and train uh, instructional coaches or literacy specialists and then expect those folks to go and spread that knowledge to everybody. In order to spread that knowledge to everyone, first of all, you've got to have the the internal structures already built so that the emissary can come back and have access to people from different groups inside the instructional ecosystem to get that knowledge to them in a really efficient and, and accurate manner. That is very difficult, which is why I'm not indicting teachers all the way up to superintendents and colleges and universities. I'm saying we need opportunities to make sure that the message goes directly to each members of each one of those groups so that nothing is lost in translation. So let me just be clear. I'm not looking down on people. I'm saying shift your professional development plan to be direct to each one of the groups and you will experience expeditious improvements in student outcomes. Okay. Now to your question, we took portions of the resource called Dr. Dickey's decodables. And we sort of like, for lack of a better phrase, uh, reposition them as resources for summer reading. Because we know that the gains that many of our children make during the school year, they lose some of those gains in the summer. So it's like taking three steps forward and taking one step back in the summer. One step back in the summer with what? One's understanding of phonics. One step back in the summer concerning what? One's ability to pronounce certain sight words. One step back with what? A phonological awareness. <laughs> and so we build kids' knowledge base and capacity. And then because they're without treatment for two to three months, they take a natural step back. And so we've uh, repurposed the uh, during the school year resources to create summer reading packets for kids that are emerging. So it's not like they're going to be repeating what they learn. They're going to get a head start on what they're going to learn in the new school year. So we have summer reading packs, which include, you know, a variety of informational and literary texts for kids to read, plus four, four page lessons for parents and guardians to use with their children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews at home so that children don't take that one step back in the summer that they continue to step forward. And so the reason why the four-page lesson is important is because it's not just enough, as I said before, to read the book. Children need an opportunity to read the book and be presented with 
thought-provoking questions around those two big buckets um, that make up the science of reading. So we've done mm-hmm. this for kinder, uh, pre-K kids emerging to kinder, all the way to kids emerging to grade 12. Mm-hmm. So that they have resources and activities that they can use, uh, have access to in the summer um, in order to um, continue to move forward. And we did a cool book bag, too, for all the kids. Yeah, to we take did. Home with them, right? Yeah, we did. And, it has and then we show. have highlighters and pencils. Yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm excited about this resource. And um, I think it speaks directly to our conversation today with literacy outcomes and how we can, you know, it's not just schools and teachers and educators that can support kids. It's also families, caregivers, parents, and community members. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, we can, we can admire the fact that kids don't read on grade level or we can resolve it. I'm sick of admiring that issue. I want to fix it. Mm-hmm. And every school or cluster of schools or district with which we've had the opportunity to share our resources and our correlate professional learning, those students have broken records. So why? Because it's a finite body of knowledge. It is not magic. It is science. And then there's a little bit of art. Right. <laughs> like there is with, with everything, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow, Doc. So is there anything else you want to share today with our viewers or listeners? That was that was a powerful uh, that was a powerful episode. Well, I just hope that people will listen carefully, present this podcast and the prior podcast uh, to members of their team as tools for developing knowledge and capacity and for calibrating folks. Be- because I'm not suggesting that every that no one knows what I'm saying that all knowledge lies with me. That would be inaccurate and inappropriate. What I'm saying is when our knowledge is calibrated, we serve kids in a more efficient and effective manner. Mm -hmm. It's it's so true. It's it's not just a one size fits all. And I love what you said also about how we've made it more complicated than... (laughs) It needs to be right. Yeah. I, you know, I'll say this. You asked me if there's something I want to say. I met this kid in Arkansas, Fort Smith, Arkansas, first grader. And let me see the orange ones, the orange cards, uh, Jerry. And his principal, by the way, uh, she's been recently um, promoted to a director of special ed, special education services uh, because her school experienced the most radical gains in her mm-hmm. district w- with our resources and our professional learning. So because I'm an African-American man and I am, you know, one of few in the literacy space at this um, level of like saturation. Okay. And Sometimes the kids, when they see me, they want to shake my hand because I'm the guy on like their, the book that they learn how to read from, right? I'm the, the guy on like the, the little sight word cards that they 
are learning how to, that they're learning from. And so sometimes principals, they use me with some of their most vulnerable kids to make personal connections. So she said, I want you to meet, let's say his name was uh, Michael. And I want you to talk to him because he's not being successful. Um, his behavior gets in his way. I said, okay, bring him to me. I'm, I'm, I'd love to meet him. And so instead of standing over him, I sit down, he walks into the room. And he politely uh, shakes my hand, my hand uh, envelops his. <laughs> and he, we exchange names and he sits at the conference table chair next to me. And I said, hey, buddy, um, would you do me a favor? I want you to read some words for me. Because I already knew his issue wasn't behavior. Behavior is oftentimes a symptom of something greater. And so my position was from the moment they told me I was going to meet him, don't blame him. Go to the root of his issue. So. I put, let me have the green ones instead, Jerry, the green ones. I put these high-frequency nouns in front of him. I put these high-frequency nouns in front of him. There's 90 of them, remember, from the site work kit. There's 90 of them. And so one after the other, I asked him to read these words for me. And the 30 or so that are associated with first grade, he knew three. Mm. Three. So <laughs> they want to wanted to peg him as behavior. But I want to know what his instructional ecosystem, including support from parents, his parents and family members, how the instructional ecosystem is positioning him to read. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yes, maybe his behavior is contributing to his inability to read, but it's not all on a seven year old. No. So what Certainly. looks like kids who kids are kids that are disengaged or uninterested or behavior challenges is they've been underserved so much that they look like something they're not. And our kids are not unintelligent. They're untaught. They're not unintelligent. They're underexposed. So that's what I would leave folks with. I will never blame the victim. I will always try to figure out the real issue that's keeping children from getting to reading proficiency. And most times it is not a child issue. It is an instructional ecosystem issue that has to be resolved. Mm-hmm. Thanks again, Dr. Dickey, for sharing all that great information and powerful, powerful stuff today. That was incredible. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Richard, for hosting. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time.